And so today we're going to be reading through one of the prophecies about Christ from the prophet Isaiah. And he was writing about 500 to 600 years before Jesus was even born. So this is a significant prophecy with centuries of time waited before it was fulfilled in the man, God, Christ Jesus. But we're going to read one of these passages. And, you know, this is the last Sunday before Christmas, if my... My, my calculations are right. I'm like many of you. I have no idea what the w- day of the week it is most days because of all this lockdown stuff. Um, all I really know is I can look out the window and tell if the sun is still up or down. But other than that, I have no idea what time is it. What year is it again? 2030 or something like that? I don't even know. How long have we been here? What's my name? Anyhow, so um, we are going to be reading this Christmassy passage together. But I need to warn you because... As I was doing my studying, more than just looking forward to Christmas comes about as you read Isaiah, because it is a thick book, it is a full book, and it was a book written during a, a very tumultuous time, way worse than even what we have it today, and Isaiah is doing many things, even in the midst of prophesying about the Christ who was to come. So we're going to read this passage, and we'll go from there, and we'll see what happens, but we're definitely going to pray. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we just give this time to you. I give this time to you. Father, would you fill me afresh with the spirit of God, which is the same spirit that dwelled in Isaiah. Help me to be a true um, servant of your word. And God, more importantly, I pray that your revelation would touch everyone who hears this message that the impossible act of having a heart and a mind transformed by miracle, by a work of God, would be working in each one of us, and we would be transformed by having the eternal life of God impact us, everyone, in the way most needful for your plan to be accomplished in the lives of each person. And I ask these things purely by grace and by mercy, as, as knowing we could never deserve it and often give you reasons to not do it. But because of your great gospel and the death of Jesus on the cross, Lord, by mercy, would you transform us into his likeness from glory to glory through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is a wonderful passage. In fact, this is one of my wife's favorite passages of all time. And one of the reasons she loves it is because she finds this to be like the Swiss army knife of preaching about the glories of Jesus in life. And it's kind of like saying, hey, If there's something you need from Jesus, it's in this passage. Because Jesus is preached to us as coming in these four awesome ways for the sake of his people. He comes as a wonderful counselor. And that's an interesting little two-word phrase in Hebrew. Essentially, it really just says, miracle counselor, two nouns. And we have to wrestle with it to translate. But when you read that, you can sound like it's a wonderful counselor. He's a counselor, does a good job. But actually that word wonderful in the Hebrew has more to do with doing miraculous power and miracles that stupefy 
people who see it. And so when Moses was wreaking havoc over Egypt with his staff, God says, I was working wonders through that. And it's that same root word there. That's what it means. A wonder is like a miraculous power of God that leaves everybody's mouth going, because they can't believe what just happened. And this is our Jesus. He comes to us as the one who is able to give wisdom and counsel, not as just somebody who's like, well, I read some statistics and I read a study one time and you know, I, I, I've read the Enneagram book, and maybe you should try this. But no, as a man who works miracles and can give miraculous counsel, so much so that your mouth is hanging down because it was perfect counsel for us. And he comes to us as mighty God as well. He comes to us with unlimited power that establishes the fact that he is God himself. And so whenever you need miracles and power, he is mighty God. He's able to deliver on the need of his people to act with power in the world, not needing to ask permission from anybody to do anything you know jesus doesn't have a passport or a visa he doesn't get held up at immigration he doesn't need to pass a law to do what he wants to he is the great lawgiver and he is the ruler over all the laws of physics and chemistry all the laws of man all the laws of nature he is far above this as far above this of all his creation as anything can be above anything he's almighty god and so if you need power jesus has that because that's his name mighty god He's also the everlasting father. So if you need um, authoritative, loving relationships, someone who is bigger than you, stronger than you, better than you, wiser than you, but still loves you and wants you and wants to be near to you and cares about you and will come to you with affection and grace and relationship, this is Jesus. He's the everlasting father. And because he's the everlasting father, he doesn't do what most of our fathers do, which is eventually pass away. This is one of the things, and you know, if you're in a Christmas time where you've had somebody pass away in the last year, you're probably bearing some great grief. I remember the first Christmas after my dad passed away was just some kind of indescribable weird because the universe had changed. But Jesus has come to us as the one who has already died and passed through death and been exalted by the resurrection and is sitting on the throne of heaven and is given to us by God as our everlasting father, the one with authority and affection who will never pass away or die, who we cannot lose and who will always be there. His relationship is so strong that, in fact, when we die, we become closer to him. That if we go into the grave, we actually go into the arms of Jesus for love and relationship and for things becoming one step closer to how they should be. He's the everlasting Father who we can't lose. And if you need peace in your heart, in your mind, in any situation, he's the Prince of Peace. The one who can come to us and can still the raging waters of the storm. And the one who can calm even raging minds and hearts the one who can speak to a man so demonically possessed he names himself Legion because there are thousands of demons within him and say it's time for you to be free so that he is at peace in his mind and his heart. He's the Prince of Peace. So the reason, one of the reasons she loves it is because she, she just sees in these four titles pretty much anything you could need in life. God has given to you and to us in this child who was born, the God-man Christ Jesus. And this is what Christmas is about. It's about remembering that day when the gift arrived in the world. Now, I was doing my study, doing my thinking on this. Um, Poor my family, when I'm working on a message, it's usually I've dedicated like a third of my mental hard drive in my head to just churning thoughts around while I'm doing things like tidying up the kitchen or whatever. And so the 
kids wonder why I'm not responding to them while they're talking. So I'm thinking about this, and I noticed something about this passage, which is really interesting to me. Maybe you can click to the next slide, and we can see it together. Thank you. So I've got the passage up here, if you don't have it in front of us. But as you notice, at the beginning of verse 6, it says this, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And then after the four titles, it says, verse 7, And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so anytime you see a repetition like that, you're supposed to kind of wake up. Wow, this passage is about government. And it dawned on me that this is probably one of the most governmental sensitive Christmases any of us is going to have. All of us here have an uninvited guest showing up on our Christmas day, Dr. Brent Rusin. He's going to be celebrating with us. He won't be there in person, but you know your day is going to be changed because of him. God bless him. I don't say that with any judgment or bitterness, but all of us, our Christmases are messed up because of the government, right? And maybe you think they're saving us. Maybe you think that they're not. There's all kinds of opinions. There, there, there's never been a time when everyone has so many unsolicited opinions coming towards them. Uh, there you go. There's never been a time where I felt like my opinion mattered less or least in my life. But this is like a governmental-centric, government-sensitive Christmas time. And so I was sensitized to the fact that this prophecy about this child coming is a prophecy about government. And so I asked the question, hey, are these titles that Jesus given to us not just about how it impacts me, but is it about the government? Is it about government? And yes, it's true. All of the four titles of the man-child, the Son of God, the Christ who was to come, are governmental titles. Mighty God is about government in the heavenly places. Everlasting Father is the governmental title of the, the, the family. The Father is the gover- governmental head of the home. The Prince of Peace, that word prince there, is sar in Hebrew, and it can mean prince like the son of the king, but it could also just mean chief or governor or judge. And even that title, Wonderful Counselor, when we hear the word counselor, we often think about someone we go and sit with, and they're, they're really like warm and thoughtful and ask probing questions that make you expose your heart and your mind and then maybe help you get over a hang-up or something like that. But biblically, a counselor primarily was a wise person who served the king. And they would talk through with kings how to rule and govern. And once they'd come together with a plan, the king would then turn to the council and say, now you go do it with my authority. And so they would be like the prime minister's cabinet or the premier's cabinet. This was a governmental role to be a counselor. Somebody who, as part of a team, figured out how they were going to rule over a nation and then accomplish that rule with authority. And so it's not just that Jesus is all these things to us, but God is actually placing onto Christ when he's born all of the government of the universe onto him with these titles. And prophesying that there is going to be a child who is born who God is going to elevate above every government that there's going to be. When Jesus was born, he became the prime minister over every prime minister and the president over every president and the king over every king and the lord over every lord and the counselor over every counselor and the father over every father and the prince over every prince. He came to rule over government. That's what this is about. 
And since the day he was born, that's been his name, and he kind of earned it through his death on the cross under fallen human government and his resurrection from the dead to destroy the power of human government. That's the greatest power every human government has is the ability to arrest you and kill you, whether kill you through 50 years in prison or kill you with a bullet in the back of your head. That's their ultimate power. And Jesus died under the ultimate power of government and kicked out the door and came out the other side to be God over gods and ruler over rulers and the top over every top and now he's the head of every home and he's the prince over every prince and that's what's going on here. And the problem Christians have is we don't like how Jesus rules the world. And we think if Jesus were really in charge, things would be a lot different. Wrong. Daniel tells us that God sets up kings and takes away kings. And he sets up rulers and he takes away rulers. It's a frightening thing to become a governmental official because you're only there exactly as long as God wants you and he doesn't even mind killing you to let you know you've been fired. Just read the Bible. You only get to reign as long as God decides. And he judges you every day. (laughs) It's a fearsome thing to be in government. God never blinks as he watches how governors are ruling. And he evaluates everything they do. Believing and unbelieving. It's a fearsome thing. But we get to live in the confidence of knowing that. They only get to live as long as God wants them to. Or reign as long as he wants them to. Thus we can have hope and live with submission and humility in these days. Now, it's really interesting to me that, that uh, Isaiah was prophesying this about this child because they lived in a time of great governmental upheaval. And one of the things that's really kind of getting under my skin about this is how this prophecy about the Christ who was to come and to have this government above all governments that would rule and reign and take care of things has a bit of a barb in it. Because Isaiah was preaching to Judah in this time where Judah was not politically strong. They were a bit like a mouse that that stronger nation cats would bat around every once in a while and play with and sometimes bite and sometimes let them scamper away back to their nest. But they were not a powerful nation. And... If you read chapter 8, so that's just the chapter before this, you'll hear Isaiah's prophesying to, to Judah, and he's saying to Judah, and he's kind of frustrated, and he's like, Judah, you are so worried about the king of Syria, this guy named Rezin, and you're so worried because Israel that's just north of you has made an alliance with the king of Syria, which is just north of them, and now they're both looking at you like a tasty morsel. And you're so worried about Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and you're so worried about Rezin, the king of Syria. And Isaiah starts prophesying to them and saying, you shouldn't worry at all. Why? Because God says, I'm stirring up the king of Assyria, and he's going to come, and he's going to destroy Syria. Assyria is going to destroy Syria, and then he's going to destroy Israel, and then he's going to take you out next. So don't worry. Because you're so worried about Syria... But actually, I'm stirring up Assyria to take you all out. <laughs> it's like, ah, Isaiah, 
you don't sound like you're being a wonderful counselor right now. If you were leading a church, everyone would be gone right now, Isaiah. And Isaiah's just like, I'm not leading a church. I'm a royal prophet, which, and most prophets don't, don't, um, die peacefully on their bed. The job of a prophet is to tell God's word until everybody hates you enough to kill you, and then they do it. That's the job of a prophet. So he's not pulling any punches, but that's literally what it talks about here. That's the prophecy from chapter 8. Stop worrying about Syria because they're, they're toast. Worry about the fact that you're toast too when I send Assyria against you. Now, if you read the story, what happens is that when the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, finally shows up at Jerusalem, Hezekiah, by God's grace, is in a humble place with the Lord, and he humbles himself before the Lord, and he prays for deliverance, and the Lord strikes the king of Assyria's army, and they all go away, and they're saved for a while yet. So the prophecy worked. The warning worked that the necessary humility of the king came at the right time when, when they looked like disaster was going to happen. They didn't turn to idols and they didn't turn to their own strengths. They turned to God in prayer. And because they prayed, God delivered them. But when I read that, it just reminds me that these prophecies of Christ's coming that we celebrate at Christmas were not delivered during peaceful times. They were delivered during times where people literally expected to die by the sword or famine or starvation. And soon. And Isaiah is wrestling with them to say, stop it. Stop looking at people. Stop looking at people. Stop looking at people. Stop looking at people. Fine. You need a person to look at. Look at this child that will be born that will have the name of God upon him. If you need a human being to stare at, stare at Jesus. Stop looking at human kings, which are just toilet paper, soon to be used and thrown away. Don't give them your emotional life. Don't give them your Twitter feed. Don't give them your Facebook. They're nothing burgers on the grill, ready to get devoured by the next king that comes along. Fix your eyes on the one who's going to be called Prince of Peace, an everlasting father, an almighty God, and wonderful counselor. Because there's going to be a day when he comes to devour them all. And we call it the second coming of Christ. And by the time Jesus is done, there's not going to be anything left but true worshipers. And no taxes. Hallelujah. When Jesus comes back a second time, it's going to be all health, all joy, all sunshine. The gold is going to be so cheap that we're going to use it to pave the streets. There's going to be all fun, all going out. You'll only have a lockdown if you want to for fun. So you're going to have some quiet time with the Lord. There'll be no tyrants, no you won't even need to write down any laws because they will be so written on our hearts that it will be our greatest joy to do what's right instead of right now where we feel like it's a drag to do what's right. Love is a drag. Righteousness is a drag. Honoring people, well, we'll do it if we think they deserve honor. Guess what? We never think they deserve honor. Hello? Hello? Yeah, I'll honor them if they perform right for me. Guess what? They never perform right for you. And the problem's your heart. Amen? 
This is is crazy times. We are not a humble people. And we are not an honoring people. We think it's all... You know, this... ah, I get stuck. You know I'm weird. Before you turned in, you know I'm weird. But I think about this stuff, and I think about this from the perspective of an Isaiah who is saying to his people... Stop worrying about Syria. The Assyrians are going to destroy you all, unless you really humble yourself. And then I look about the fact that there's like 10 people in this room and how we could be like, oh, where's our big worship services? Where's everybody gathered together? And I wonder if an Isaiah would come along and be like, what were you doing with this time when you got together? That you feel like you have a right to keep doing it. Was your get-togethers really times where you came and worshipped God like he was the only thing worth living for? And you came just to tremble at his word? Or were you judges and critics and gossips and slanderers and backstabbers and divisive and self-pitying and insecure and worrying about yourself and evaluating positions of power and just grumblers? Maybe this is our spank which we need. Because we've been really unworthy of the true worship of Christ. Well, no, it's all the government's fault. Yet the government that Jesus rules over, the one that does what he wants. And we spit against Christ and we complain against Christ because for one Christmas we're not getting everything we want. As we worship a Christ who died for us. On a cross, naked, violated, publicly. That's just me. You know I'm weird, so I don't say stuff like that in public. But I do want us to be worthy of the return to worship. That would be something I would say in public. That when we get back together, that Christ would say, you have conducted yourselves in your home time, in a way that you really are proving yourself to be true disciples of Christ. And you are coming back together to offer Christ living sacrifice worship, not get what I want during singing time worship. And to come to tremble at his word, not grumble at what Rob said this Sunday. You don't like what I said? Believe better. Humble yourself more. Obey more zealously. But don't just feel like you're not getting the strokes you love. That I'm not performing like your favorite celebrity preacher. That's just treating me like internet porn. Stop it. You know what I mean? It's not your job just to click so that you can see everything that turns your crank. We're here to die. We're here to lose. I've been thinking about Old Testament worship. Remember we talked about the wise men coming? They came and they threw their gold down and they went back broke. Do we go home broke from our worship times? Do we go home with broken hearts and broken spirits for the lost and for the glory of Christ? Do we go home empty-handed except for the name of Jesus? Or do we want to come rich and go home richer? I don't know. You tell me. I hope I'm totally wrong. Maybe I'm the only one. But we do have a problem in the West of treating other people like they're characters in our own personal movies. And we dislike how they're acting, and so we let them know. Nobody here exists for our pleasure. 
Everybody exists for the glory of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to purchase for himself men for God. To judge them according to that standard. Live in fear. And why, why am I being so weird? This is why I'm being so weird. Because Isaiah said this, in verse 11, starting verse 11, chapter 8, and Isaiah said, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. Anybody want a strong hand of God upon them? And warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And I just think, what kind of gospel is this? Where the prophet would say to him, don't be afraid of some foreign army. Be afraid of God, who's in control of all this stuff. Let him be holy in your heart. Let him be the only thing that matters and the only thing you want. Let him be the one that you exalt so highly that suffering for him is a pleasure and an honor and a privilege. Let's be frustrated that we don't get to go and die on the mission field. I know that's crazy. And you know what? Deep down in my heart, I'm a coward except for the Spirit of God. And so I'll just, I'll just own that right now. I literally was weeping with Dallas a few months ago, just saying, Dallas, I am broken because I know that if I tried to go on the mission field, I would be terrorized every day. And Dallas was just so kind and said, well, you know, if God calls you to it, he'll give you grace to it. And that's how we live. But I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. People say, I don't want a new normal. I want a new normal. I want a new normal of zeal. I want a new normal of being on fire. I want a new normal of honoring. I want a new normal of love. I want a new normal. Don't you want a new normal? Was, was, was 2019 that great in Canada that we want to go back to that? Was this year so wonderful that you want more of this year? Don't we want better in Christ? And the price is just unlimited humility and a willing to suffer and die for his name. That's the price. Unlimited humility. Like God himself. Guys, this, look, at, look at this passage. Just the paradox of it. Anybody preach about a paradox on the prayer chat recently? Here's this child. His name is Almighty God. That doesn't make any sense. I... I, I was brushing my teeth regularly this week going, I don't understand how any Jewish person for 500 years could read this passage without getting upset. Here's this child. His name is Mighty God. Either he's Mighty God and there's no way he should be so humble as to become a child, or he is a child and there's no way you ought to call him Mighty God. But here comes our Christ who if he had just stayed in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's a trap. This is Isaiah saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, the flaming angels, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook 
spoke with the voice of him who called and the house was filled with the smoke. That was what Jesus was enjoying before he became the baby. Unending, unlimited exaltation of praise by the holiest creatures in creation. True worship. Nobody sitting there kind of with their hands in their pocket. I What's for lunch? No, complete selfless adoration for all eternity was what he enjoyed until he became the child. He's so humble. Are we getting it yet? He's so humble. He's so humble. And it's the only way to know Jesus is to be unlimitedly humble. He's so humble. This is one of the things that I've found during this time that's been, it's not been bad, but it's been there. It's just noticing the weakness of Jesus. Because I'm in a leadership position where there is no right answer and there is no way to appear strong in these J's. You can only appear to be weak and failing. And that's, I'm not saying that with any self-pity, but then I look at Christ and I'm just like, we would hate Jesus if he was here because he was so pathetically weak. He got taken by the guards and he never fought back. They struck him in the face and he didn't say anything. He's so hatefully weak and humble. Even though he's God. And we can't put up with anything. So it's Christmas. This is what I'm calling us to, church. You you didn't get to choose everything that's happening this Christmas. You might be stuck with people you don't want to be stuck with. I don't. I'm not assuming, but you probably aren't getting to connect with people you want to connect with. Put on your most joyful humility. Be a profound servant of the Lord. Don't let your heart make anybody else's Christmas work. I'm calling a truce on complaining about the government. Years ago during World War I, on a Christmas day, the two sides of the world's worst war stopped fighting and actually exchanged gifts to honor Christ. I don't know how they ended up in this place where they were fighting on other sides of a world war, but they actually called a truce and exchanged gifts with people on the day that before they were shooting to kill and the next day they were shooting to kill. But if they could take a truce for Christmas, We can take a truce for Christmas, too. (laughs) Let's just drop it. Let's just drop the anger, drop the complaining, accept everything from the hand of God, and do everything we can to make, but to humbly make everybody else's time better by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And if you're experiencing loss, thank Jesus for it. He knows how to take loss and turn it into resurrection life. He knows how to take missing people and bring them back from the dead. Put them in the Lazarus hole. You see, I can't see my dad. Put him in the Lazarus hole by prayer and say, bring him back to me by miracle. Do just, just put your faith in Jesus. Let's do it. And, and he can help. He can help. He can help. But let's hate our selfishness during this Christmas time. Let's hate our self-seekingness. Just go back to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, I'm thinking about myself. Save me, save me, save me. Be my wonderful counselor. Be my almighty God. Be my everlasting father when I'm lonely. Be my prince of peace and help me be the kingdom of God. 
in my home in this time when everything's wrong because you rose from the dead to do it. And let's aim to have a Christmas that we, we will be, by grace, able to stand in the presence of God on the final judgment about. Amen? So why don't we sing... I'm going to pray. Father, I just give you, give you the wonderful prophecies of Christ. And Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm just not even worthy to speak about him. But God, by grace, we get to know him. And Lord, I pray for such a profound miracle during this season of loss for us. Lord, that we would see you as with our naked eyes and embrace what you have for us and know you and love you. God, I pray for a miraculous capacity to feel the love of God through Jesus. Lord, for anybody who even wants it, Lord, that we would be able to feel during these times with our knower and our hearts and whatever, even physically, if that's on your your to-do list, Lord, the love of God which surpasses all things, Lord, that we would begin to understand when Paul says, I have lost everything and consider everything poop for the knowledge of Christ according to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. We begin to attain that truth that we would be happy to lose anything to know Jesus and to attain to his resurrection, God. And Lord, my deepest prayer is that coming out of this time, we wouldn't come back together just to be together again, but we would come back together to be more dangerous to the kingdom of darkness and more fruitful in the spread of the kingdom and more empowered to give grace-filled love to each other and more willing to reach out to the lost than ever before and would have ever been possible except for this time of suffering that you have sovereignly let us go through. That's my hope, Lord. This is my hope, Lord. I lift up my hope to you, Lord, for great miracles that one day the Middle East would be a place known not for Islam, but known for worship of the name of Christ, that people would see someone with dark skin and black hair and think they're probably a Christian instead of probably a Muslim. Lord, I lift up my hope in the day that one day China would be known not as a communist terrorizing nation, but as a place of overflowing missions and love of Christ to the highest places of political power, Lord Jesus. These are my hopes and they're completely impossible. They're as impossible as a dead man walking out of the grave and ascending to a throne in heaven, but I lift up my hopes to you. I lift up my hope for Canada, Lord, to be a place where we really love each other from the heart with humility, Lord Jesus, and you are named afresh and all our old churches become new churches for the glory of God. So do these things, Lord, if they please you, and if not, do what's better for your name's sake.